Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. On this episode, we'll talk with first-time biographer Eric K. Washington. His book, Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal, was published in October 2019 by Liverite. In an online Zoom session, I asked Eric why he decided to write about a man celebrated as the chief of Grand Central Station's Red Caps and who was one of Harlem's highly regarded residents, James H. Williams. I was fascinated when I came across him. And in his own time, he was a figure who a lot of Harlemites knew, particularly a lot of young black college students. And though his name has been forgotten over the years, when I came across him, I only had to start doing a little bit of research once he was sort of first introduced to me to realize that he was somebody who was there for so many major events of the cities and the countries and even world history. Um, and he, he counted and he was a player. And um, so while he was not one of those who endured in terms of name recognition, he embodies a lot of those figures through time who played significant roles or bore significant witness to their life and times. All right. So um, when was he born and and when did he die? He was born in 1878 in New York City uh, on West 15th Street in what's now sort of fashionable Chelsea, but it was a tenement that is still inhabited to this day. And he died in 1948, uh, just a, a few months shy of his 70th birthday. So you said you were introduced to him. How did you find James H. Williams? It was actually in part thanks to Hurricane Sandy. (laughs) Um, I I give tours of New York, mostly focusing on uptown Harlem and Harlem adjacent. And um, in 2013, this was the centennial of Grand Central Terminal. And of course, this was going to be celebrated. And I give a lot of tours for um, various organizations and institutions. But one in particular was the Municipal Arts Society of New York. And they got the commission to give daily tours for the centennial. So the docent training program got ruined by Hurricane Sandy because a lot of the docents were going to come in from Queens and and they couldn't get over the bridge or whatever. I live in Upper Manhattan and they asked me as one of the regular guides if I'd be interested. And I was a little hesitant because it's not really my beat. I know Grand Central is significant, but I thought, you know, yeah, let's do it. I don't think at the time I was aware that Red Caps and Pullman Porters were different. I probably thought they were just pretty much the same with different names used interchangeably. And very quickly I learned that the Pullman Porters rode the rails, the Red Caps worked the stations. And um, while they had different job descriptions, they were essentially in um, service positions and they were bound by race. And so uh, I didn't realize I was hitting pay dirt. but. Um, I quickly learned that Grand Central was the most important railroad station in the country, if not the world, and it was being touted as the gateway to the American continent. So whatever was going on in Grand Central, other railroad stations wanted to emulate. So Williams being stationed there 
uh, he integrated what was uh, all white workforce. And um, then everybody else integrated their red cap workforce. Um, were red caps the name given to the men who worked in railroad stations across the country? So the, the system, uh, William started working at Grand Central when he was about 24, 25 in uh, April of 1903. And that's when construction began on the current Grand Central Terminal that we all know today. He was the first black to integrate the force. So there was already a, a force of men who handled your baggage and they wore red caps. So this was sort of an obvious choice for, for, for their name. It had started eight years earlier in 1895 uh, with a dozen men. And part of the reason was uh, because it was such an important nexus of, of, of transportation, but also because New York was uh, a polyglot cosmopolis. They wanted the men to uh, be able to greet people, give the place a good face, but also to speak other languages. So they were also bilingual. So you had somebody who could speak Spanish, could speak German, could speak uh, French and, and what have you. And uh, another particular reason was because in the 1890s, 1895, when they started, a lot of women were traveling singly unchaperoned much more often than they had before. Mm. And there were concerns about women falling prey to, they were calling them bunco men, um, bad guys who, you know, who would hang around railroad stations and bus depots. You know, that hasn't changed in a lot of ways, you know, even today. And it was very successful. It was very popular because they helped people carry their bags and gave directions. And it was sort of described as a part of the job description was to be sort of a, a walking encyclopedia to be able to tell you about features of the city, how to get there, how to get to your connection if you had another train, um, where to eat, that sort of thing. So they were more than just luggage handlers. They were actually guides getting people from Grand Central into the city. Exactly. So it was it was hospitality. So they were meant to sort of be sort of gallants, sort of like squires, to particularly to help, you know, young women were like, let me take your hat box. Let me even take your, your the baby for you while you're getting that, you know, it's sort of the idea of like putting your jacket over the puddle kind of thing, being, you know, showing some sort of gallantry. And if you had language skills, which were one of the requirements, and you were white, you were probably very quickly disgruntled and figuring, you know, I can do better than this. So eight years in, in 1903, and they're preparing to build a whole new terminal, and there's already this other force of African-American men, the Pullman porters riding the rails. Uh, there seemed to have been some sort of concerted effort to just overhaul the system and hire blacks. And uh, this is where Williams came in. And the job description quickly changed because people were used to having blacks do subservient work and carry more and you had to kind of hustle to make your money. So they were distinct because they were really, uh, for good part, uh, overqualified for these jobs because a number of them were college students and this was something that Williams was particularly interested in. Did he have a college degree? He did not and that was one of the things that uh, there were certain sort of um, ironies that I, I found sort of charming about him because he never went beyond grammar school. But he was very, very big on uh, young men who seemed to have a purpose in life and were pursuing something, and particularly who were already in school. And this was always a problem for any student, um, white or black, you know, having to, if, you know, if somebody wasn't financing your bills, you usually had to get a side job or something. And for blacks, it was even more difficult. There were all of these racial barriers. So uh, he became quite known for several decades 
in service. And he kept this job, you know, for almost half a century. So how long did it take for him to go from being the first black red cap to being the guy who was in charge of all the red caps in Grand Central? This is actually fascinating. He starts in 1903. He's the first black red cap. And within a year, the force is entirely black. Um, one of the things I found interesting was that it was not, would not have been unusual for there to have been some sort of pushback to have a black employee coming to integrate an all-white staff. I didn't come across any evidence of that, which gives me the impression that it was probably a concerted plan and that the whites could always be promoted into some other department or get jobs elsewhere. So there didn't seem to be pushback uh, that appeared in any of the papers, and I, I scoured so much material. Uh, six years after he was first hired, uh, in 1909, he was promoted to be chief attendant. They were called attendants, but uh, that was kind of the more formal term. And uh, when he integrated the system, everybody seemed, you know, across the country seemed to be following suit, with a few exceptions. But uh, for the most part, it became this labor occupation that was identified with African-American men, like the Pullman porters uh, were. And for, depending on the times, uh, he would supervise uh, upwards of uh, several dozen to up to about 500 men. Wow. And, and this was another reason why he was quite well known uh, in Harlem and in other black communities, because there were so few blacks who were in charge of so many other men. He was the head honcho for that department, and it meant something. Uh, students came from a lot of HBCUs in the South or black students who were studying in the Northeast or locally in New York would come often to get a job and he would hire them. And uh, many of them became names that we still know today, like Paul Ropes, you know, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., um, Richard Huey. He was, he's another name that I'm, I'm doing more research on now, but he was like the workingest black actor on Broadway for many, many, many years. So, um, it, again, you know, it was another example that attested to the men who took these jobs, these very, very humble jobs, for um, the purpose of completing their scholarship and getting their degrees and, and in turn being able to serve the community in, in various ways. As a matter of fact, he didn't only hire students, but this was one of the things that he was particularly known for. And some men, you know, made careers of being red caps. This is what they did. Uh, so it was an interesting mix, um, to say the least, of, of, of people who were in contact with one another. Because we're talking about a man whose life spanned the latter part of the 19th century into the middle of the 20th century, how did you conduct the research and, how, and what kind of research did you do? I mean, one of the things that fascinated me about uh, James Williams was that he straddles so many really significant eras in American history. He was born to parents who were both from Virginia, and they were both born in slavery. His father was supposed to have, according to family law, had been a runaway, and um, they met and married in New York. So he's, uh, he's born right after Reconstruction. Uh, he lives through the Spanish-American War, through um, the turn of the century and all the hoopla that's associated with that, the Harlem Renaissance, uh, Prohibition, the Great Depression, World War One, World War Two. Um, so he's connected to so many of these moments and the things that are associated with them. The, the, the rush of development that happens in, early in the in the twentieth century, and he's also, even though the long title of the book 
points up Grand Central where he worked, he was a major figure because of the position that he had in Harlem. Um, one of the things that he was known for and the Red Caps were known for were their philanthropy. One of the first things that he did when he started, because these men were working essentially for tips, unsalaried. Uh, there were various periods where they had some sort of salary, but for the most part, they were dependent upon tips to survive. And nevertheless, when there were particular causes that they found of interest, they were some of the first to give and to give most notably for buying um, Liberty Bonds during the First World War and what have you. One of the first acts that kind of showed his leadership when he was made Chief Red Cap in 1909 was, uh, you know, they were building Grand Central Terminal over the old Grand Central Station, and the trains were still running on the same schedule. But you can imagine in that kind of an environment, there were accidents. And one of the first things that he did after he was made chief was he called all the Red Caps down to... Um, we now call it uh, Hell's Kitchen, West 53rd Street, which had been a, a major hub of black life uh, before people started moving up to Harlem. And they organized a uh, mutual aid society so that if they were sick and, or dying or hard up for, for expenses, as most people are at some time or another, there was some sort of a pool that they could draw from. Mm-hmm. And building up the morale of, of, of the workers who were there for the, doing this really, really humble work kept them connected to community life uptown. And uh, so in these ways, he wasn't just that he was popular because he, he you know, had this, this position at Grand Central, but what they were putting back into the, the neighborhood. He also did other things that were really kind of interesting. Uh, he organized a baseball team. He organized uh, an orchestra because a lot of the men were professional quality musicians, um, a, uh, a quartet. Uh, it not only entertained, uh, as music is wont to do, but it also made the men autonomous because if they could perform as the Grand Central Red Cap Orchestra or, or Quartet, they could also hire themselves out. And again, his influence is seen in other stations because other stations are doing the same thing. Everybody's copying whatever happens at Grand Central and among blacks, whatever Williams's crew is doing, they're emulating. So there was this constant uh, flow of information, intimately connected to the pulse of the Harlem Renaissance. So what kind of information were you able to gain in terms of the man himself? Who was James Williams and and how did he develop into the man that he became? Right. I was lucky because his great-grandson, who's sort of the repository for a lot of the photographs that the family had, uh, gave me his blessing and, and carte blanche to use whatever I wanted for the book. And this was great because a lot of things we were able to identify just because of what the, what was in the photo. Then there were the what was indispensable uh, were uh, newspapers. So I had access to a newspaper database, which included a lot of the the black press, because it was always being written about. Not also in the white presses or the general mainstream press, like in the Times and the New York Herald or whatever. But having access to newspaper articles was just indispensable. He was not a man of letters, so he didn't leave diaries or anything. So being able to kind of track him or backtrack him through uh, events, or if I found somebody prominent at a particular event that I knew uh, or suspected that he might have some sort of sentiment for, I could look for other articles and very often I would find his name listed among those who were attending or what have you. Nothing was concentrated in one place. So um, 
using a lot of the conventional places like the Schomburg Labor Records, the NAACP. Uh, there were some firsthand letters from James Weldon Johnson and Walter White to Chief Williams, and then being able to extrapolate or supplement a lot of that information. So a lot of it was just kind of finding a, a pinpoint, walking around it and digging and, you know, and, and, um, and connecting the dots. And it was, it was like building a web. But um, it was exciting because it was always a puzzle. And like any puzzle, it's frustrating. But you find one little bit and all of a sudden it feels momentous. And sometimes it really was because um, researching anybody with a name like Williams is... <laughs> I mean, this is this. I mean, you can appreciate how frustrating that is. My name is Washington. Tell me, so, you know. tell me about it. My name is William. So <laughs> yeah, so, right, exactly. I see, you want to kind of ignore some of them because you realize it's just like you know, there's all Williams in this barrel. They can't all be related, you know. So something came up, and it was a tennis prize. And so I was reading it kind of casually, and there was a trophy called the Williams Cup, and it was an eight hundred dollar silver Tiffany cup. And then I was starting to look away and they were saying the Williams Cup was donated by, and then I saw Chief Williams. And then, so of course, then I'm leaning in. And sure enough, it was the American Tennis Association. This is the country's oldest, still ongoing black sports association. They were established in 1916. And in the late 1920s, they were trying to encourage black college students uh, keep them interested in going to school, but also keep them interested in the game of tennis. And they approached Chief Williams because they knew that he had a history with working with young people and encouraging young people to stay in school and giving them the means by giving them a job. But the Williams Cup came out of this, this Tiffany Trophy. For, it was the highest price cup. And for like three decades, it went into competition in 1931. And uh, I was able to trace it until about 1960, so almost 30 years. And the other thing, too, is that obviously this particular tennis association existed because of Jim Crow. Exactly. So the effort was always made to keep people interested, but also keep the, their organizations as professional and meticulously regarded and loved and cherished and venerated as the white organizations that they couldn't get into. Wow, that's amazing. Let me ask you, too, about significant events that happened during his uh, tenure as chief of the the Grips, of the Red Caps, that have some relevance to some of the things that are happening today. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the fact that he was one of the people who, he, he became the person who would integrate this system and change the system, came on the heels of issues that had to do with policing, which we're talking about currently now, there was a, a tremendous riot in um, 1900. It's sort of identified as a race riot, but it's interesting because it, it wasn't like the races were rioting because it was more or less that whites were attacking blacks. And uh, it's often identified as a police riot because policemen uh, had notoriously participated in the riot and there were hearings about this. And they were known as the Tenderloin Riots or the West Side Riots in 1900. And Williams was living in the midst of this area of New York called the Tenderloin, which was uh, sort of a notorious area. And um, a lot of what we're hearing today, the complaints 120 years later, that people are making against police culture in this country were being heard at the time. Um, I wrote about it in the book. There's one paragraph which will sound sort of familiar. The pastor of um, St. Mark's, Methodist Episcopal Church, which was one of the more famous uh, black churches in, in New York, 
was a um, one of the, the the major leaders in the movement that would try to take the, the police department to task for their bad behavior, and one of the things that he did after the riot, and he, and he accused them of whitewashing the story of what really had happened. So he um, he helps to co-found the uh, what's called the the Citizens Protective League, and one of the things uh, that they do, they you know they take affidavits of people in the neighborhood, Williams's neighborhood, of accounts that are given about what had transpired. And uh, some of the things that they accuse uh, the police of doing is uh, said uh, officers had kicked in doors of upstanding uh, colored businessmen who were, in quotes, uh, mercilessly clubbed upon their own premises. Uh, terrified men and women threw themselves on the mercy of the law, uh, seeking refuge from the mobs in police stations. And they were beaten by officers while getting out of patrol wagons. Officers had also recklessly shot at women and children who were looking on, you know, at the mayhem in the streets from their windows. Uh, they drove men out of saloons to feed them to the mob. Uh, they shielded white offenders and abused innocent blacks. And they broke into homes and rousted men and women from bed and paraded them naked to the station. And officers turned thieves and stole when they broke in. And Williams was, um, was associated with this church. And one of the things that came out of it, very much like the reaction to the George Floyd murder that we're talking about today with um, people being in the streets, and this news of the West Side riot went across the country. And people were so shamed by this behavior that it caused the, a lot of reformers, white reformers, to start using their influence to make jobs available. And I think Williams, who starts at Grand Central three years later, comes in on that tide of sentiment that we are all Americans and everyone is not getting a, a square deal. Mm-hmm. And this really confirmed for me the value of paying attention to a lot of these people who were so essential and often so famous in their time uh, as contributors, people who really counted in their communities or in world events. It's really attests to me uh, the importance that these kind of figures, forgotten figures, uh, have in being sort of resurrected, as it, as it were. And very often they still, when you are reintroduced to them, you see that they are still speaking about current events as we're living and breathing them today. That was Eric K. Washington talking about his biography, Boss of the Grips, the life of James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal, published in October 2019 by Liverite. This online Zoom conversation was recorded on June 8, 2020. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. Bye.